Everybody, it is Thursday, December 21st. You're listening to the Mo News Podcast. I'm Mo Shwanunu. This is the place where we bring you just the facts and we read all the news and read between the lines so you don't have to. As you might be able to tell already, today is a solo episode. We are both traveling uh, respectively on Wednesday. Jill is set to be back for tomorrow, for Friday, for the last episode of 2023, which brings me to a programming note. Uh, next week, we will have a bunch of interviews we're rolling out on this podcast for you, but no daily news episodes until January 2nd. So new episodes next week with interviews for you to listen over the holiday period. And I guess if something crazy happens, though, I don't want to jinx myself, though, maybe I just did, you know, we'll pop up with something. But tomorrow will be the last daily uh, news episode of the year. And then we're back the day after New Year's. All right, with that, let's get started with today's headlines. We'll dive into the implications and fallout of that Colorado Supreme Court ruling booting Trump from the ballot in the state. It now likely heads to the U.S. Supreme Court. What are their options? How could they rule here? There's a new round of serious talks right now about releasing more hostages uh, from Hamas in Gaza, but the terror group is demanding more this time from the Israelis. We'll go into the state of those negotiations. The federal government here in the U.S. is investigating the FAA exhaustion levels at a new high. Several close calls. What are they doing about it? There was a prisoner exchange on Wednesday between the U.S. and Venezuela to free Americans held down there in exchange for a prisoner held in America. It involves a guy who goes by the name Fat Leonard. I'll explain. In business news, a major media merger is in the works between Warner Brothers Discovery and Paramount. It could bring together under one house HBO, CBS, CNN, Nickelodeon, movie studios, as the rest of the media entities try to compete with Netflix's and Disney's of the world. And of course, as we head closer to Christmas, it is the time to rewatch Home Alone. One question many of us have always had, how did the McAllisters afford that house and the trip to Paris for the entire family? What did they do? Well, if you can believe it, Federal Reserve economists have gotten involved here to try to calculate that. I'll have those numbers. And of course, I'll bring you on this day in history on this December 21st. By the way, good luck to all of you traveling today. Today and tomorrow are the busiest days to fly, according to AAA. So make sure you have more than enough time at the airport. All right, let's begin with the fallout from the Colorado Supreme Court decision banning Donald Trump from the ballot. We mentioned it on the podcast yesterday. We've now got an extra day now to read through the 200-page decision and watch the reaction here. So this involves the late Tuesday ruling by the Colorado Supreme Court, which ruled that Trump cannot appear on the presidential primary ballot uh, in the state. They're set to vote there in early March. It was a four to three decision by the state court there ruling that Trump is ineligible to be president and therefore ineligible to appear on the ballot because he engaged in insurrection at the U.S. Capitol on January 6th. The state court ruling there that he violated Article 3 of the 14th Amendment, the Insurrection Clause that was passed after the Civil War, and the U.S. Constitution prohibits insurrectionists from holding high office. Now, it's notable as this went through the ranks in Colorado because Colorado's highest court overturned a ruling by a lower court, which found that while they believe that Trump did engage in insurrection, they interpreted the Constitution's 14th Amendment to not cover the presidency, but other positions. Now, the Colorado Supreme Court ruled that not only did Trump engage in insurrection on January 6th, but that they believe their interpretation is that the U.S. Constitution, the federal Constitution, allows them in Colorado to then ban Trump from the ballot. 
Now, notably here, as part of their decision, the Colorado Supreme Court stayed or postponed their ruling from taking effect until January 4th. So just about two weeks, that is the uh, final deadline for candidates to appear on the ballot in Colorado. It gives Trump time to appeal to the U.S. Supreme Court. Now, if a review is sought, and we believe that is very likely here, uh, Trump's name will actually remain on the ballot, according to the Supreme Court ruling here in Colorado, uh, staying the ruling in case the U.S. Supreme Court takes it up, which means effectively, depending on when the U.S. Supreme Court takes this up and rules, Trump's name could still appear on the ballot here, March 5th, though this does have larger implications uh, across the country for other primary ballots where there's fights happening. I'll tell you about that in a second as well as the general election ballot in November. Now, Colorado here, not a competitive state. The past few cycles have been heavily Democratic. Trump lost it by 13 points in 2020. He does not need the state to win a next year. But the concern for the Trump folks is that other must-win competitive states could follow Colorado's lead here, depending on how the U.S. Supreme Court rules on whether it's okay to bar Trump from the ballot. At least 16 other states right now have pending legal challenges to Trump's eligibility for office under the 14th Amendment. Four of the lawsuits have been filed in state courts in Michigan, Oregon, New Jersey, and Wisconsin. Michigan and Wisconsin, uh, very competitive states, as we've told you about. Then there's 11 other lawsuits in Alaska, Arizona, Nevada, New York, New Mexico, South Carolina, Texas, Vermont, Virginia, West Virginia, Wyoming. They've all been filed in federal district courts I should note there's also another uh, pending challenge in Maine. So as of this taping, almost a third of the country's states have uh, decisions to be made about Trump's eligibility for the ballot, again, under this 14th Amendment. This is a post-Civil War provision that was aimed at former Confederate officials not being able to serve in the U.S. government after the Civil War. It's been really little used in the past 140 years or so, kind of post-Civil War. That said, it has been revived here. There has been a lot of interpretation, including by some conservative legal scholars, that they believe the insurrection clause applies to Trump here. So Colorado, the first state to go forward with this, this now will, as I mentioned, go to the U.S. Supreme Court, and they have a lot of options here. And let me take you through them. Number one, the Supreme Court in Washington could choose not to take the case. They could say, this is not our business. Colorado, do what you will with your interpretation of the Constitution. Now, I will say Uh, most folks I've spoken to believe that is unlikely. Uh, It will create potentially chaos here with all 50 states defining how the U.S. Constitution applies the presidential ballot. There's federal implications here. The presidency is a federal office. So it is very likely the Supreme Court will take up this case. So how could they rule? Well, there are a number of ways, routes for them to interpret this case. They could rule on the merits of the case, as in, does Section 3 of the 14th Amendment apply to presidential candidates? Does the insurrection clause apply to the presidency? Now, that is something, as I mentioned, that was actually debated within the Colorado court system, uh, the Supreme Court in the state ultimately deciding, yes, it does apply. So there's going to be a question there. Will the Supreme Court tackle that question? Secondarily, There will be a freedom of speech argument, a First Amendment argument here, as in when Trump gave his January 6th speech and tweeted various things in the lead up to January 6th, was he engaging in freedom of speech or did he cross the line into insurrection? That is another thing the Supreme Court could uh, try to rule on here, a First Amendment case. There is also the question of, in the 14th Amendment, defining what insurrection means. Was January 6th an insurrection legally, constitutionally? 
or was it just a riot? So they could dive into what is an insurrection? But I won't stop there. There are several more avenues they could rule on here, including the process, as in can Colorado state courts determine that Trump even engaged in insurrection? Is that within the jurisdiction of a state court to interpret a federal law like that? And a larger question, do courts have the power to ban candidates from the ballot using the 14th Amendment? Again, this has not been used since the Civil War. And if you look back on case law, you can go to a precedent in 1869, where a judge at the time determined that you actually needed legislation to proceed with the 14th Amendment, as in Congress needs to pass a law banning that candidate to then enable states to ban a candidate. So the courts can't just rule based on a 14th Amendment, but you need Congress to get involved here. And that'll be an interesting way the court here could approach this, which is, listen, this is not for judges to uh, determine. Congress, legislation needs to happen uh, to ban a candidate. Or they might just say, actually, it's up to voters to determine that and not courts. So a lot of avenues here, both on the merits of the case defining insurrection, First Amendment speech, a process, a state jurisdiction, congressional role. And then you have this. Trump has actually, despite all the talk, despite the several cases, has not been explicitly charged with insurrection or rebellion in any of the criminal cases. In the federal election interference case, he's been charged with conspiracy to defraud the U.S., conspiracy to obstruct an official proceeding, and conspiracy against rights. That's the case, one of the two federal cases, uh, besides the classified records case, that's going up in March. So can a court ban Trump for insurrection, even though he hasn't been charged or convicted of insurrection? Yet another thing to determine here. So it is a very complex matter. It'll be very interesting to see how the Supreme Court adjudicates this, how they debate this. There's a lot of talk that given the split in the country right now, that we cannot afford a 6-3 ruling or a 5-4 ruling along conservative liberal lines on the court, that the court might find a way to keep Trump on the ballot here with a 9-0 ruling by going with a very careful determination on one of these aspects of the law. What I found interesting in reading the dissent from the Colorado decision, a reminder, the decision was 4-3. to It was a split uh, court there, just a very slim majority. Uh, one of the dissenters, Justice Carlos Samora Jr., said that barring Trump from the ballot without legislation from Congress violates Trump's due process rights, especially because Trump has not been charged with insurrection. Samora writes in his dissent, opposed to this ruling, that, quote, I'm disturbed about the potential chaos wrought by an imprudent, unconstitutional and standardless system in which each state gets to adjudicate Section 3 on an ad hoc basis. Uh, We already saw on Wednesday the Attorney General in Texas saying, I'm going to ban Biden from the ballot now uh, because I don't agree with how he's interpreting immigration, how he's dealing with illegal immigration. So the concern here for the Supreme Court, again, another reason they're going to take this up, is because of the chaos this could create uh, in all 50 states. So, you know, the court may determine here they don't want to deal with the fact of whether Trump engaged in insurrection. In fact, some of them might agree he did engage in insurrection, but they might decide that uh, not having congressional legislation or that a state just can't determine on its own uh, who violates Section 3, that that is a federal thing uh, that needs to be handled. So that is that case. But that's not the only case the Supreme Court is dealing with right now when it comes to Trump. As we mentioned, there's the multiple criminal cases. As we mentioned on the podcast last week, uh, right now, Trump is arguing in the two federal cases that since he was president, he had immunity from being charged. And so he can't be prosecuted. That is something now that has been sent up to the Supreme Court. Interestingly, 
and the Supreme Court is not opposed to this, there could be horse trading between the justices. I was listening to uh, the Advisory Opinions podcast that is put out by The Dispatch. We've had uh, Sarah Isker from that podcast on before to talk about federal law. And she was discussing this over on that pod, that basically what could be happening behind the scenes between the justices is in order to get to a more overwhelming decision, so it's not split along 6-3, is that you could have some liberals convinced by the conservatives to say, you know, Trump should be allowed on the ballot here in this case. In exchange, you could see some conservatives determine that Trump is not immune from being prosecuted in the other case. So some conservatives, in essence, in the first case, in the federal indictment, could determine, you know what, Trump's not immune here. And in exchange, you could have liberals on the court, the three liberals, go with the conservatives in determining in a more overwhelming majority that Trump can remain on the ballot. So two separate situations here. Again, we'll never quite know the details there, but that is something that goes on in the court, given that they got multiple uh, cases now when it comes to Trump and election 2024. And still to this day, more than 20 years later, it's not lost on the Supreme Court that that Bush v. Gore decision, which put Bush in the White House in 2000, was a 5-4 decision along partisan lines. And that did a lot of damage to the court. And given where we are with the state of politics today, the idea is they can't afford another partisan split, especially when it comes to Trump, especially in the fallout of January 6th. So this will have the Supreme Court making some really interesting decisions in the coming months, and we'll continue to keep track of them. So that's the legal side. Then there's the political side, which is very interesting because all of Trump's opponents, who all want to defeat him in the primary, all came to his defense in the past 24 hours. It's clear they want to beat him at the ballot box and not through the court of law. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis charging that the court's ruling here in Colorado is a plot to ensure Trump actually wins the nomination because Democrats view him as the weakest Republican candidate, that basically this is a plot to elevate Trump because every time there's a case against Trump that brings more support from Republicans and independents uh, to his bid for the White House. You also had Nikki Haley telling reporters on Tuesday that the last thing we want is judges telling us who can and cannot be on the ballot. That's up to the voters. Vivek Ramaswamy, who's a big fan of Trump, is essentially auditioning to be his vice presidential candidate, actually pledged to withdraw his name from the Colorado primary unless Trump is allowed back on and demanded actually that DeSantis, Christie, Haley all do the same. And then that brings me to former New Jersey Governor Chris Christie. We've told you about how much he hates Trump and believes that Trump is actually uh, bad for this country and should not be president again. That said, he slammed the ruling, saying uh, we should beat him at the ballot box, and that's the way that defeat will be most validated by the American people. So all the Republicans, regardless of how they feel about Trump, saying this ruling goes too far, it should be up to the voters. Then you have President Biden. Here's what he said to reporters about uh, Trump as he was headed to an event on Wednesday. Notably, the audio here is from outside a plane on a tarmac on Wednesday. Well, I think it's self-evident. You saw it all. Now, whether the 14th Amendment applies, I'll let the court make that decision. So essentially what you got from the president there, uh, who's very likely to be uh, facing Trump in the general election, self-evident that Trump engaged in insurrection, but I'm going to let the courts decide here. Uh, Notably, we also have RFK Jr., the independent candidate running for president. He also said he's no fan of Trump, but he tweeted out, if Trump is kept out of office through judicial fiat rather than being defeated in a fair election, his supporters will never accept the result. This country will become ungovernable. So basically, you have nearly all of his opponents none of whom want to see him as president again, 
all saying they believe the court went too far here. At the same time, uh, you have liberals. You also have some conservative judicial analysts who believe the 14th Amendment uh, totally legitimate here. But again, this likely will come down to the Supreme Court and a lot of nuance here. Uh, Appreciate all of you listening as we went through those options. We also go through them in today's Mode newsletter if you want to read further. All right, before we get to today's speed read, I want to thank our sponsor this week, Factor. If you're like us, if you're like me and Jill, it's a busy time right now. You're trying to pack everything in before the holidays, finish everything you need to do for work, uh, maybe planning a vacation. The last thing you want to worry about right now is meal prep. Well, I'm happy to say that our partner this week is going to help you with all of that, or at least one piece of that. Factor, America's number one ready-to-eat meal delivery service. Both of us have been using them in our respective homes for ready-to-made delivered meals for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. They're never frozen, chef-prepared, dietitian-approved, ready-to-eat factor meals delivered straight to your refrigerator. I've been loving them, especially a beef dish I had recently and a chicken dish. They also have great cold-pressed juices, and they're ready in just two minutes. All you have to do is heat them up and enjoy. So treat yourself this holiday season amid all the craziness to ready-made meals. Over at Factormeals.com, you can choose from 35-plus chef-crafted meals every week uh, made for your lifestyle and meal preferences. So I definitely urge all of you to check it out. You can head to Factormeals.com, that is F-A-C-T-O-R, Factormeals.com slash MoNews50 to get 50% off your first order. The code again is MoNews50, M-O-N-E-W-S 50, over at Factormeals.com slash MoNews50 for 50% off. All right, that brings me to today's speed read. We begin with this from Reuters. The U.S. says that, quote, very serious negotiations are now taking place on a new Gaza ceasefire and the release of more Israeli hostages. But while serious talks are happening, the prospects for a deal remain uncertain as Hamas has insisted it will not discuss anything less than a complete end to the Israeli offensive in Gaza. Basically, they don't want a temporary truce this time, like we saw last time, for the hostage exchange. But what Hamas is looking for is a permanent ceasefire as part of this next deal. You saw the Hamas leader, the Qatar-based leader, Ismail Haniya, visiting Egypt on Wednesday. He went there for discussions with Egyptian officials who are trying to mediate here a new deal between the Israelis and Hamas. We should note, by the way, this comes as Hamas has lost more than 50% now of its uh, units, its military units, uh, a number of its major terrorist leaders in the 11-week war, lost major capabilities. In fact, yesterday, uh, the Israelis said it was the first day without rocket fire in some time, uh, meaning the Hamas has either run out of rockets or had too many destroyed or just isn't capable of launching them on Israeli targets. This is what the Israelis said they were trying to force here uh, to do enough damage to Hamas to force them to the negotiating table, to force them to give up the nearly 130 hostages currently being held in Gaza over the course of the past 11 weeks. Notably, Palestinian Islamic Jihad, that's a smaller terror group, which is also holding hostages in Gaza. Uh, Their leader is also going to be visiting Egypt in the coming days to discuss the end of the conflict from their perspective. They're sort of a junior partner to Hamas, but notably getting involved in these negotiations as well. Israel has insisted that all remaining women, as well as elderly men, and any sick and disabled hostages uh, be released in this next round In exchange, the Israelis have indicated that they would be willing to release Palestinians convicted of more serious offenses uh, as part of prisoners they would release from Israel in exchange for the uh, Israeli civilian hostages. 
Keep in mind, in that last hostage exchange earlier this fall, Israelis said they would not release any Palestinians convicted of murder. It appears this time they may be willing to do that. President Biden on Wednesday was asked about another hostage release. Uh, He said that we're pushing, we're pushing was his quote, but he didn't indicate how imminent a deal was. As far as the Israelis are concerned publicly, they said a war will only be ended here if Hamas is eradicated All hostages are freed, and Gaza poses no more of a threat to Israel. They want Hamas to completely give up here, uh, give up uh, control of Gaza, and release all hostages. That's what the Israelis have been saying for some time now, if uh, Hamas wants the war to end. It does come as the humanitarian situation continues uh, to get worse in the Gaza Strip. The death toll has now surpassed 20,000 in Gaza uh, during the war. That's according to the Hamas-run health ministry there. And beyond that, tens of thousands of Palestinians are wounded in the war as well. Uh, Among those 20,000, by the way, the Israelis claim that more than 8,000 of the dead in Gaza uh, were uh, members of Hamas, about 40% of the death toll. That said, uh, nearly 2 million Palestinians now in Gaza displaced uh, as that place has seen utter destruction during this war, living in various refugee camps right now, uh, seeking aid. And uh, we've brought you those comments from the UN and other international aid organizations in recent weeks who've said that it is a dire, dire situation. uh, And they're looking for more humanitarian aid to come in. Uh, There has been a second uh, crossing open between Israel and the Gaza Strip this week to let in more aid. Uh, Also, we learned yesterday, Cyprus, the island of Cyprus, is exploring a sea route to bring more aid into Gaza beyond those land routes. So look out for that in the coming days. All right, next up here, we have this from Axios. A major media merger may be in the offing here uh, in early 2024. The chief executive for Warner Brothers Discovery, David Zasloff, met with the CEO of Paramount, Bob Backish, this week to discuss a possible merger between those huge media companies as a deal that could unite some of Hollywood and Cable's biggest brands Right now, the two executives, Zasloff and Backish, have broached the idea of a deal, but no formal talks have begun. Keep in mind here, when we're talking about Warner Brothers Discovery and Paramount, that is the Warner Movie Studio, the Paramount Movie Studio. Cable networks like CNN, TNT, HBO, HGTV, the streaming service Max, the streaming service Paramount Plus. Uh, You also have CBS in there. MTV, Nickelodeon, Comedy Central, and then all the sports rights, right, between CBS uh, and TNT, NCAA, football, NBA. Now, Paramount and Warner Brothers Discovery, on their own, are worth tens of billions of dollars, but they're competing against companies that are worth hundreds of billions of dollars, the likes of Disney+, Plus, the likes of Netflix. And so what's been happening right now in the industry is a discussion of scale, over these last few years, that because of how expensive things have gotten, because of the uh, diminishing returns from cable, because uh, streaming is still a very challenging environment and it's very difficult to get all of us to pay for a Netflix and a Disney and a Paramount and a Max, all of these smaller brands, and again, I'll use smaller in air quotes, uh, worth tens of billions need to get bigger to compete with Netflix and Disney. So their hope is, if this is to happen, They can create a mega news entity between CBS and CNN, a mega sports entity between Warner Sports and CBS Sports. Combining those studios, the Warner Brothers Studio and the Paramount Studio would be key, as well as combining the streaming services, the Paramount Plus uh, and the Max audiences that would allow them to better compete uh, with a larger library of content, etc. So we're going to watch that. We don't find this conversation altogether surprising. Whether Warner and Paramount end up together or it ends up being a different tie-up between, say, a Comcast or uh, some of the other 
media entities out there. That's something we're going to be watching next year. All right, next up from the Associated Press, the U.S. freed a close ally of Venezuelan dictator Nicolas Maduro in exchange for the release of 10 Americans who were imprisoned in Venezuela. This deal represents the Biden administration's biggest move yet to improve relations with Venezuela, a major oil producing nation. The two countries have been on the outs for a number of years here, but it appears uh, they're opening up. This is the largest release of American prisoners in Venezuela's history. It does come weeks after the White House agreed to suspend some sanctions on Venezuela. This follows a commitment by Maduro to work towards free and fair elections coming next year in the country. Maduro has been engaged in a crackdown on rights, and that follows Hugo Chavez for years in Venezuela. The Venezuelan economy has not grown in a number of decades, actually. Uh, There's been millions of Venezuelans who have left the country. It's fallen on very, very hard times there. The U.S. tried to make a push in recent years to push Maduro out. That did not work. So you see this turn here and these negotiations happening. So you saw this prisoner exchange happen in the last day. Uh, The Maduro ally that's been released, by the way, uh, is a Colombian businessman by the name of Alex Saab. He was granted clemency by President Biden and returned to Venezuela yesterday. Uh, Saab had been accused of siphoning off $350 million from Venezuela via the U.S. in a scheme that involved bribing Venezuelan government officials, effectively accused of profiting from the starvation of Venezuelans. Many Venezuelans say Saab had become synonymous with the worst abuses of the Maduro government was arrested by the U.S., but released in exchange for uh, the Americans, who the U.S. says were wrongfully detained in Venezuela, also returned to the U.S. A fugitive Malaysian businessman named Leonard Glenn Francis, also known as Fat Leonard. He has been implicated in a massive U.S. Navy bribery case. He was actually in house arrest in San Diego until recently, escaped to Venezuela. Fat Leonard has now been returned to the U.S. uh, as part of the largest bribery investigation in U.S. military history. This involved dozens of officials, etc. So again, to recap here, the U.S. released a Maduro ally. The uh, Venezuelans released 10 Americans and Fat Leonard to the U.S. The bottom line here, a key issue for the Biden administration has been bringing home, jailed Americans, wrongfully detained. I mentioned it in my podcast with uh, Secretary of State Tony Blinken uh, in my interview earlier this week. Uh, He keeps a card of Americans who are held wrongfully abroad in various countries and has made it his priority to bring them home, even if it means these types of prisoner exchanges. Uh, We saw a bit of that under Trump. We're seeing more of that under Biden now. And it'll be interesting to see um, what unfolds here with the U.S.-Venezuela relationship after a number of years now of uh, basically no relationship at all. All right, next in the speed read, we have this from News Nation. With a shortage of over 3,000 air traffic controllers nationwide, overworked and fatigued employees have become a major concern for the airlines. So now the FAA is turning to sleep experts to identify ways to address exhaustion when it comes to our air traffic controllers. Over the past year, there have been almost 300 near collisions between airplanes. Incidents have been linked to sleep-deprived controllers, working mandatory overtime or six days a week, many weeks. In the fiscal year that ended September 30th, there were 503 air traffic control lapses that the FAA has categorized as, quote, significant. That is 65% more than the prior year. And that comes as air traffic has increased about 4%. But in the same time, we're seeing a 65% increase in these lapses with exhausted air traffic controllers. So uh, to help rectify this, the FAA is putting together a three-member panel of sleep experts next month. They're going to begin studying ways on how the latest science on sleep needs and fatigue considerations can be applied 
to controller work requirements and scheduling. Uh, they're having a tough time with FAA recruiting and maintaining air traffic controllers. So we'll see if this helps, but certainly something that the airlines have raised, that Congress has raised, and has become a huge priority in recent months. All right. And finally, in lighter news from the New York Times, we've asked this question on the podcast before. Many of you might be thinking it when you have watched or rewatched Home Alone. How rich were the McAllisters in the Home Alone movie? How did they afford 15 tickets to Paris, a number of people in first class, and that house? Well, at the New York Times, they have asked economists at the U.S. Federal Reserve to help them calculate that. The Times speaking with three economists at the Federal Reserve Bank in Chicago. And since the McAllister's home is actually a real-world property in the Chicago suburb of Winnetka, uh, I'm from the North Shore, familiar with Winnetka, um, growing up there, for those of you who live there, uh, many people like to uh, do a drive-by by the Home Alone house. By the way, not the only house uh, you can visit. Movie house uh, you can drive by in Chicago. There's the Ferris Bueller house. There's a high school where a Breakfast Club takes place. A lot of the John Hughes movies shot in Chicago, shot in real-life places. So separately here, the Home Alone house uh, in Chicago. So that allowed economists to compare data from household incomes in the Chicago area in the 1990s and look at the house's property value and mortgage rates to determine uh, the net worth of the McAllisters here. So they determined that a household with an income of $300,000 a year back in 1990, which by the way, today is closer to $700,000, would have been able to afford that home, assuming the family did not spend more than 30% of their income on housing. Translation, that would have put the McAllisters in the top 1% of Chicago area incomes, according to the Federal Reserve Bank of Chicago. That house, by the way, uh, today will cost you about $2.5 million. Uh, it is in one of the most expensive neighborhoods in the Chicago area. So no surprise here. They've determined that the McAllisters were in the top 1%. But the movie never really tells you what they did. And that's something the Times uh, spoke to the writer of the film about, Todd Strasser. Now, based on the novelization of uh, the film, Kate McAllister, the mom, uh, was a fashion designer. Some extrapolated that by the fact that there were all these mannequins in the house, which, of course, Kevin uses uh, to fight off the burglars. And the writers uh, effectively uh, said that Pete McAllister, the dad, was a businessman. But as far as the movie's concerned, uh, they said they were prioritizing the main plot, Macaulay Culkin's character fighting off the burglars. And so they never really thought to have to explain why the McAllisters uh, got their money, how rich they were. It was just an assumption made in the film. Anyway, I found uh, that story interesting and wanted to put it in today's speed read just because, you know, it's the season for it. And Home Alone is such a holiday classic. All right, we end here, as we always do, with On This Day in History on December 21st. On this day in 1913, the New York World newspaper published the first modern crossword puzzle. So happy birthday to the newspaper crossword puzzle, uh, 110 years old today. On this day in 1937, the classic animated movie Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs premiered. That established Disney as one of the world's most innovative and creative movie makers at the time. All right, on this day in 1970. It's the day that Nixon met Elvis. Many of you are familiar with this famous photo of the president and the rock star. Interesting backstory here. Three weeks before the photo was taken, before the visit to the White House, Elvis had actually met with Nixon's vice president, Spiro Agnew, in California. Presley apparently told the vice president at the time that he wanted to help the White House with their anti-drug campaign. Elvis then flew to Washington on December 20th, checking into a hotel under an alias. He then showed up to the White House with no appointment and a letter for the president. In the letter, he wrote that he did not agree with drug culture, hippie elements, student protesters, 
Black Panthers. He thought that they all hated America and he wanted to help Nixon uh, with the anti-drug campaign. A guard at the White House recognized Elvis and said, hold on one second. Maybe I'll let you in. He checked with the uh, West Wing. They said, yeah, let Elvis in. And so an impromptu meeting happens between Elvis and Nixon. Notably, Elvis brought a gun to the White House. It was a World War II era Colt 45 pistol. He presented it to Nixon as a gift. Those were the days, right? <laughs> Can you imagine that today? Anyway, that was 53 years ago, a very different era uh, when it comes to White House security and a whole variety of things. And so uh, Nixon and Elvis meet in the Oval Office. The two are then photographed uh, shaking hands. Uh, that's the famous photo that uh, many of us have seen that you can Google. Presley apparently surprised Nixon by giving him a hug, um, according uh, to reports afterwards. And we have gotten a copy of Nixon's thank you note to Elvis that he wrote about 10 days later, thanking him for the pistol and for visiting the White House, though he says nothing in the letter about having Elvis help him with the war on drugs. Notably, by the way, and many of you know this, Elvis would die just a few years later. His death is widely believed to have been caused by his abuse of alcohol and prescription drugs. It's notable here that Elvis really wanted to take a stand against other drugs. Anyway, I thought you'd find that uh, interesting. 53 years ago today, how the meeting between Elvis and Nixon happened. We'll stay with pop culture news as uh, we end on this day in history, turning 59 years old today. The Temptations released their song, My Girl. All right, another classic film from the early 90s because we were mentioning Home Alone earlier. Premiering today, 33 years ago, Kindergarten Cop, starring Arnold Schwarzenegger. Who is your daddy and what does he do? A lot of classic lines from that film for the elder millennial set and Gen Xers who remember that movie. And finally, on this day, 11 years ago, the music video for South Korean singer Psy, Gangnam Style, became the first video on YouTube to get 1 billion views. Open Gangnam Style. All right, I want to thank all of you for listening to the Mo News Podcast. If you like what you hear, please review us. Those reviews do matter. I appreciate all of you who can leave us a five-star review. Because, of course, if you're making it to the end of the podcast, you got to give us five stars, right? Um, so Spotify, Apple, and Matters, appreciate all of you reviewing us. Also, make sure to tell your friends and family about this podcast in the new year. Appreciate all of you a couple weeks ago sharing your Spotify wraps, uh, especially those of you who uh, have made us your number one or put uh, our podcast in your top five listens of the year. Appreciate all of you. We have one more daily edition to go uh, for this year's podcast run. So tune in tomorrow. Jill and I will be back to send you on your way for the holidays. See you guys. Thanks for listening to the Mo News Podcast.